to Across the Movie All, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm great. Happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, Bruce Willis is back in VOD form. Uh, that's right. The New York Times has discovered this crazy new trend, big name actors trading in on their legend for straight-to-VOD and DVD productions. Uh, The Bruce Willis Journey from In Demand to On Demand is the name of the essay, and it includes fascinating nuggets like, quote, What struck me most is how much they, that is the movies, rely on gunplay, end quote. And, quote, the idea of masculinity in these movies... Uh, the I'm sorry, the idea of masculinity these movies project is troubling, end quote. Um, an action star in action movies with guns and men that act manly. It's really quite unfathomable. Uh, joking aside, there is something interesting here about the ways in which distribution uh, and audience tastes are evolving alongside one another. Bruce Willis isn't the first star to trade in on his name to make cheapo action movies. Think Charles Bronson's Cannon Days or Jean-Claude Van Damme basically making anything after 1998 or so. Um, other artists such as Mel Gibson have taken a similar tack in recent years, but I would argue with better results, movies like Fat Man or Dragged Across Concrete. Uh, that said, there is something interesting, uh, uh, about the intensity with which Bruce Willis in particular has done this, uh, and the exploding means of distribution just in general. Uh, today news broke that Run, Hide, Fight, the movie that was produced by the company on which this podcast originated, uh, is, is coming to the Daily Wire of all places. Very weird, very unusual, but it's content, right? It's all content. Between Redbox and Video On Demand and the Daily Wire now, there's a whole world of people out there looking for something new who care about nothing more than a face on a box or uh, a good pitch tagline. Uh, Alyssa, what is your favorite terrible Bruce Willis movie before we get started on everything else? So I think um, one of the reasons that people have this weird reaction to people, to Bruce Willis showing up in these kinds of movies is that it's possible to think of him primarily as an action star. It's also possible to think of him as sort of a quirky indie actor. And so, you know, my favorite Bruce Willis movies are like Moonrise Kingdom and The Fifth Element. Um... You know, rather than... I mean, I like Die Hard a lot. Um, My husband should probably not hear me shading Die Hard on this podcast. Um, But so it's... I mean, it's entirely possible to look at Bruce Willis's latest work and be like, beyond the question of making an enormous amount of money for showing up for not very much work, like, what is he doing? Isn't he this interesting, arty actor who's in things like Motherless Brooklyn? And so I think um, people tend to find, you know... Willis, for all that he is incredibly famous for playing John McClane for other action roles, has this other streak to his career that I think makes this seem particularly discordant to some people. Yeah, I mean that that that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, I it, Bruce Willis has always kind of struck me as a working actor, like an actor's actor, like in almost in the British mode, yeah. um, where you you would have uh, you know these great British actors like uh, you know. Sir Alec Guinness or whoever, right? Uh, famously treated Star Wars as like just another silly day of work, right? And and you you have these guys kind of pop up in in movie after movie after movie. Um, and Bruce Willis has always kind of felt that way. Yes, he does some interesting stuff, but also he does you know a lot of paycheck work. He's got mouths to feed. He's got kids to raise. He's got mansions. He famously, Beverly Hills uh, mansions to pay for. Hates it. spending time in the makeup chair. 
like just won't do prep that way right like won't do anything where he's blue or has to wear a prosthetic or whatever yeah and like bitches about having to work out which he has to do like he, he talks about he's like i read the script and then i read the shooting schedule and there's like three days when i gotta take my shirt off and i'm like well i guess i gotta work out that week well i guess i gotta work out that week yeah right he just like he he's just like treats it's like well all right i guess that week i'm gonna have to have abs yeah I mean, that's also how I get abs when I'm prepping for this show. It's like, I got to do my crunches Sunday night so I can be ready Monday Monday afternoon for uh, across the movie. I'll, I don't, Peter, what do, you, what do you make of all this? I mean, it's it's very, we live in a very weird and unsettled time. And I do think that there is, uh, there, there is, there is a very specific way in which Bruce Willis is emblematic of that weird time. Yeah, so um, you read, uh, I think, a couple of the standout lines from this piece uh, that... Like, on the one hand, I can see why Sonny Bunch, the internet character, would be annoyed by those lines. Mm. But I actually think there's some real insight in those lines, even if maybe the, the piece doesn't exactly tease them out quite as uh, much as I would really have liked, which is that go back to the original Die Hard, which is the movie that made Bruce Willis's career not just as an actor, but as an action movie star. And there were two things that, were re that are really notable about that movie, especially in retrospect. One was that it was very much explicitly, and this was not just notable in retrospect, but at, very clear at the time, very much, and he was an everyman hero. He was totally positioned in, uh, in opposition to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone in particular, and the kind of super buff, like giant, you know, sort of unthinking male macho-ness that dominated 1980s uh, action films. And that was one of the reasons the movie succeeded so much. But also go back and look, that movie has guns in it. It definitely has a bunch of shooting. But it's mostly not about shooting. It's mostly about plot, and it's mostly about his cleverness in the face of a bunch of other guys with guns. And in fact, you can I can only think of, I, I, it's been a little while since I've seen it, but I think there's only one really kind of big shootout sequence, and that's Chief Dim Glass, right? Um, and that's the, the, the bit in the, the glass room. And then the rest of it is him kind of trying to get through this uh, this gauntlet that they have created to take out guys individually without guns um, or without the heavy firepower. And over time, he has become kind of a caricature of of the character that he originally played, who was this sort of blue-collar well, guy with, with depth, right? John, and John now McClane he's him. just like a macho yeah. archetype. Well, and I it's mean, a John, little bit of a weird and disappointing yeah. turn. If you look at the Die Hard movies themselves, John McClane has kind of transformed from this guy who runs over you know, uh, glass-strewn floors in his bare feet and, and it hurts to a Superman-type character where he's yeah. just being being all, you know, crazy and macho and stuff. Uh, but, but Peter, you were making a point before uh, this this show actually started that the, the interesting thing about this is kind of the kind of lack of action movies just in general this year, yeah. the weird... Uh, the weird state of action filmmaking. I mean, you've you've got Tenet, you've got Wonder Woman 1984, obviously, which we talked about last week. Um, but that that's kind of about it in terms of the big budget traditional action movies. So there's also stuff like um, uh, uh, Project Power, like Extraction, 
um, like The Last Days of American Crime and uh, the Charlize Theron movie. Uh, the right, guard. Netflix did the old guard. Um, Netflix did sort of four of these over the summer, and their budgets weren't small. They were sixty to ninety million dollars or so. That's not those aren't tiny budgets. Now those do it. That does include all of the back end payments that they sort of bought out for their directors and stars and above the line talent. So they're not quite that big. They're, it, the budgets aren't quite one to one when compared to a typical theatrical feature. Um, but it's been a weird year for action movies. Yeah, and like I was thinking about this. What are the memorable action sequences from this year? And I guess you could say that 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 long that fake long shot from the middle of Extraction was pretty good. Um, I I liked that at the time. Although actually, you had to remind me of it, Sonny, when we were talking earlier. Right. Well, yeah. Other, I mean, it's... the only other two action sequences that I can think of that are in features, so not on television, that are in features that really made a mark were the uh, the chase sequence in the middle of Tenet. And then even more so the opera sequence that opens Tenet, which really is a, a standout, remarkable action sequence and would be, I think, in most years. Uh, I watched it again recently. Like, it's great and it's going so well. And then about 90 seconds into this five and a half minute sequence, uh, you get the um, you you get John David Washington going for the coat rack and it's the slide under the coat rack, like uh, the, the coat rack uh, counter. That just is like suddenly you're you're like you know you're in the hands of a great great action sequence, where just like the movement and the camera work and everything is just like going so smoothly and so well and just has been like designed within an inch of its life and we saw that once this year and that's really a weird thing, given that over the last decade or so Hollywood has reoriented itself towards making more and more really big kind of action spectacles and even something like Mulan which is a remake of a mid-90s Disney cartoon was remade as a not very great action movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, the other, I mean, the other thing is a lot of these movies were made, they just didn't get released. That's right. I mean, uh, but we didn't get to see got... them, right? We didn't get to see Top right. Gun 2. We didn't get to see Black Widow. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that we just didn't get to see. And what that meant was we just kind of didn't get the... We didn't get the action cinema that I am very used to that like has sort of that has that has tided me over. Right. Like like a pretty good action movie with two great action sequences, even a even a not that great action movie with two great action sequences is a movie that's worth seeing and worth thinking about again. And a lot of the movies that I rewatch just when I'm bored, when it's late at night, whatever, end up being those sorts of action movies. And they just didn't come out here this year. And it was really weird. But that's yeah. true. I, I think that's true of pretty much every genre, right? I mean, you know, I it's not like we got most of the sort of Oscar bait movies. I mean, we're going to get some more of them in the weeks to come. Um, but, you know, it's not like we we didn't I didn't get my Wes Anderson fix. Like I didn't get the yeah. French Dispatch. And I really miss having a Wes Anderson movie, specifically one that's like basically about The New Yorker, which is about as targeted to me as a movie could possibly be. So I think like everybody is missing their favorite genre. And it makes the stuff that we did get that feels sort of anemic, I think more frustrating, right? I mean, if you're going to get a limited number of these things, you want them all to be good and memorable because we're holding on to those new experiences so closely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's it's a weird, it is a weird, weird time. I also um, think it's worth noting that, uh, you know, we talked about action spectacle becoming sort of the Hollywood standard, like the genre that is most profitable and most familiar. 
And there is a difference between that and the sort of nastier R-rated direct-to-video, like lots of people get shot or killed in unpleasant ways, uh, stuff that, you know, is more of what the video-on-demand stuff is. So it's not like, um, I mean, Willis is sort of working in a genre that Hollywood doesn't make a ton of right now, right? I mean, these are not, you know, direct-to-video, like PG-13, you know, people get punched really hard and, like, maybe there's a magic hammer. Um, It is sort of a – it has more in common with, I think, extraction than with the stuff that we – well, there, there's also Our this kind of spending a lot of time talking about this burgeoning dra- uh, genre that has that, uh, call it the right. It's the old man action film that has like really blown up since Taken and Liam Taken Neeson, was maybe. Uh, yeah. and right. Taken's proved that Liam Neeson had purchase as a mid to low budget action star who could release one to three movies a year. And you would go see it because not because these movies were great. In fact, a lot of them are basically 1990s Steven Seagal films. Except but because with some, Liam there's Neeson, there's something incongruous and hilarious about watching Liam Neeson punch a wolf. But also, Liam Neeson has like the greatest voice and delivery, right? And like manages to do this stuff. He he doesn't have um, quite the physical presence that Steven Seagal had in his actual prime, you know, under siege era. Um, but he has a he has a much better physical presence than old Steven Seagal did. I mean, Steven Seagal's late movies, he spent most of them sitting down for a reason because like Steven Seagal had gotten so out of shape that he just couldn't do the stuff that he did earlier. And and that's not true of Neeson. And Neeson is sort of the elevator version of this, right? But he has helped pioneer uh, this model of filmmaking. And you see this with Nicolas Cage too, who's doing four to six movies a year, making a bunch of money, paying off his tax debt and issues there. Some of those movies are great. Some of them are not. The main thing that matters is they've got Nicolas Cage in them. And yeah. sometimes we get a Mandy out of that. And Mandy's amazing. Yeah. Not for you, Alessa. But uh, but it's a fantastic, like, weird, trippy film for the ages. But a lot of that stuff that he makes is just, like, you've never heard of it. You don't need to have heard of it. You don't need to have seen it at all. So what you're saying is that Hollywood does, in fact, have a masculinity crisis. And all these old dudes are doing action movies in part to ward off the specter of death. <laughs> Uh, you know what's interesting that to make thirty million dollars a year for working. Well, they I, they're they're not making thirty. I I guarantee you, Bruce Willis did not make thirty million dollars a year on these movies uh, last year. Um, the what what is uh, there? There was one interesting part in this uh, this this New York Times piece that I that I didn't did not tease out, but is worth mentioning, and that is that the cheaper budgets and the kind of like lower expectations allows the actors to do some interesting and weird things. Um, the the author of the piece highlighted Thomas Jane, uh, for instance, in the in the newest Bruce Willis movie, which is set in space. It's a horror movie set in space, uh, wearing sunglasses all the time indoors and, and how like that's kind of a weird, quirky thing that you can get away with when you're doing something like this. Nick Cage, of course, is, is has kind of made a, a late career out of this sort of thing. Um, another, I, I mean, another issue with Bruce Willis is that he just looks like he's sleeping, walking through all of these movies. He never actually does anything interesting in them, which is which is a problem. Um, but again, there are, there are people who do it better. Like I mentioned, I mentioned Mel Gibson and Fat Man, and that, that's a movie where he's doing. Uh, something kind of interesting and weird uh, and 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 is actually putting some effort into it. Um, all right. Uh, exit. Exit question. Uh, what, um, Peter, is your favorite weird performance in a cheap uh, a recent VOD style action movie? Go. Oh, man. Um, favorite 
performance. Uh, I don't know the answer to this. I, okay. I need terrible uh, exit question. I oh look. So I mean, I I liked dragged across concrete quite a bit. Um, you know, I I can understand why people might have issues with that movie, but I think it's really well made. Uh, and Vince Vaughn is fantastic in it. Right? Like, I mean, there's stuff like that that's that's very good. Uh, I don't know that I would that I have one that I want to single out as being the best. Yeah. All right, Alyssa. Any any uh, suggestions here? For Just people? go watch Looper, y'all. Uh, you know, Looper. Looper's okay. Looper's okay. Speaking of derivative, Looper. Uh, okay. Uh, if you enjoy this show, and and who doesn't? It's great. Even when I'm asking terrible exit questions like that, uh, make sure to head over to ATMA dot the bulwark.com where we'll we'll have a bonus members only episode about Twitter's first main character of 2021, Bean Dad. The guy who forced his nine-year-old daughter to learn how to use a can opener all by herself before getting milkshake ducked for his old bad tweets. Everyone gets milkshake ducked eventually. And he was this year's first victim. Uh, all right, if now you don't tweet. Well, that's true. If you just don't tweet, you won't you won't ever get caught. Uh, now on to the main event, Soul. Pixar's latest computer animated confection dropped on Disney Plus at Christmas. And it is, like most Pixar-related properties, both a delight to look at and designed to tug on the heartstrings. Jamie Foxx voices Joe, a middle school teacher who, as the film begins, and much to his mother's delight, receives word that he has been promoted to full-time status at his school. With that job comes salary, benefits, a pension, and existential angst. Joe, you see, believes he's made for something more. He wants to play music for people, not teach snot-nosed punks who couldn't give a crap about what their teacher is saying. Uh, much to his delight, he is given exactly that chance, an opportunity to fill in on piano for Dorothea Williams. Much to his shame, he dies before getting the chance to take the opportunity, falling through an open manhole cover to his almost death. He doesn't actually technically die, he winds up on life support. Uh, not ready to pass into the great beyond, Joe is tasked with helping Soul 22, voiced by Tina Fey, uh, find her spark so she can go down to earth and get busy with the business of living. Can Joe succeed where Mother Teresa, among others, has failed? Uh, I have two thoughts about Soul before I kick it to you guys for discussion. Uh, thought the first, Pete Doctor, the director, uh, is an emotional terrorist. And I mean that in the nicest way possible. Between this and up, Inside Out, and Monsters, Inc. He has figured out, with almost mathematical precision, how to wring tears from the stingiest, driest of ducks. Uh, the DSM should include not crying during Up's marriage montage as a sign of sociopathy. I strongly believe this. Um, the, the second thought is this. Uh, the score for this movie by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross is amazing. Nimbly moving between jazzy arrangements and a more digital feel when extra-dimensional beings who guide the new souls through the birthing process or into the afterworld are on screen. We'll come back to the emotional terrorism in a moment, I'm sure, but first, Peter, uh, which do you prefer? Their score here or their work on Mank? I think I actually like the score here better. Um, I mean, I'm a huge Nine Inch Nails fan. Um, I've been listening to Trent Reznor since I was 12 or 13 years old. It's kind of amazing to think back to like the just the absolutely brutal chainsaw sludge metal of the Broken EP, which was his interlude. Um, you know, after uh, after some of the more kind of techno work that he did um, on Pretty Hate Machine. Uh, in which he just went like full chainsaw sledge metal. And it was, and like now that guy 
is making these incredibly emotionally rich and complex and like delicate, sensitive scores for children's movies. Although we should also talk about that too, which is since we, since like we started, I mean, I think it's sort of appropriate. We started with Bruce Willis entering his like late middle age phase. Soul is Pixar entering its middle age phase, right? It's not quite old man Pixar, but this is as close as we've ever gotten to like, just a straightforward movie for adults from Pixar. They've always kind of flirted with this, with making movies that are that appeal to adults and that have adult themes and, you know, are, are much better made than I think many other children's movies. But typically there's a child or like some funny animal or something like that at the center of the film that grounds it in a children's reality. This is a movie about a middle-aged guy whose life didn't turn out the way he wanted it to and who finally has that opportunity and then, of course, has to deal, has to reckon with the idea of death. Like, that's a dark movie for kids. It's literally Up. This is what happens in Up. There's, but Up has, like, the dogs and stuff and it's also, it's, like, he's so old that he's just a cartoon character. This movie has a cat. All right, so here's, I I understand what you're saying. This is, this is, I've I've seen this talk a lot. I will say that I watched it with my five-year-old and my two-year-old and they were both very into it. So I'm not, I'm I'm not not saying that kids can't handle this movie. I'm not not totally sold on the idea that this is a movie that is, like, explicitly for adults and not for kids in a way that other Pixar movies aren't. I mean, I, I think you could you could argue that Inside Out is very much the same way. I mean, Inside Out is is technically in the mind of a child, but it's all it's about all of these middle aged emotions arguing with each other. Uh, and again, Up is about an old man who loses his wife and has to figure out you know what what is the purpose of living uh, anymore. I don't know, Alyssa. What do you think? Is this a movie that kids can appreciate and understand, or is it? Just for the adults. Um, it's probably a movie that kids can appreciate and understand. I think I liked it less than the two of you did. Um, in part because I think um, there's sort of there was a little bit of tension between its setup and its ultimate message. Um, and I'm assuming anyone who is listening to this podcast has watched Soul at this point. But um, there's this sort of concept in the movie of um, you can kind of go to this spiritual place called the zone when you're really good at something you sort of detach from your body and exist in this kind of liminal space but there is this flip side um to being in the zone um that where the occupants have a lot of in common but it's in a negative way um lost souls are people who have become obsessed with something that detaches them from everyday life um and like the people in the zone they are you know completely enraptured in their obsession but it is it's not elevating them it's sort of bringing them down and the movie you know the main character joe gardner um you know enters the zone a couple of times when he's having just really great moments playing piano um but the movie also suggests that his um obsession with jazz has really detached him from a lot of people in his life he hasn't pursued a romantic relationship he has this tension with his mother um you know, there are just these sort of holes in his life. He has not fully appreciated living because he has been so obsessed with jazz. And the movie has one line about the fact that people who are in the zone have something in common with lost souls, but it never really answers the question of whether Joe's obsession with music has made him a more sort of emotionally impoverished person. Um, And the movie leaves open at the end the question of whether he decides to become a full-time jazz musician or whether he teaches. 
Um, and th- I think there again, there's some tension there because the message of the movie is that he's supposed to really live and engage and the way that the movie portrays him doing that is, you know, he gains his appreciation for sort of the little things in life, the, you know, the, um, like the maple seedling coming down from the tree, the, you know, the joys of riding the subway. Um, but at the same time, those are the things that he didn't appreciate when he was sort of fully obsessed with his artistry. And so I think the movie sort of kind of whiffs on the question of whether Joe's obsession was in the thing that made him great was also the as a musician was also the thing that was keeping him from living his life fully um and I think the movie's both sort of metaphysics and plotting kind of whiff away from that question in a way that made it feel a little I wouldn't say cowardly but like not quite as brave as Pixar often is um yeah, I, I can kind of see what you're saying. I, I, I disagree slightly because I do think that that montage is designed to demonstrate uh, what he has been missing and like what he... So so the, there, there's a whole riff in the movie about what is your spark, right? Um, and the, the, the extra dimension, the Jerry's and the Terry's, right? They're like, well, it's not it's not about finding your purpose. It's not about finding, you know, what you're supposed to be doing. It's, it's about the finding the thing that that kind of imbues you with life more or less i mean i forget what the the actual line is and i do think that that is kind of what they are getting at both in that montage and and with his uh his performance of music and his his love of music uh or or am i way off here peter i don't think it's wrong um i think Alyssa is right in that the movie struggles a little bit to define what what like good inspiration is versus the kind that takes too much from you. And it doesn't, and it like, it wants us to see that there is a cost to the sort of hobby or fascination or inspiration even that, that takes you away from, from real life uh, for too long and for too much while also not quite getting too much into what that cost is at the same time, at the same time, this is a kid's movie. This is a kid's movie, a family movie at least, and it does give us a cost. It does say, it does show us the kind of uh, Miyazaki-esque little demon creature that you become, right? The little, that little sort of shadowy thing with no, with, with no life to you. We're trawling around on the floor of the, of the zone, right? Um, and needing to be saved by- It's very spirited right? away. It's very, yeah. I mean, this movie's so miyazaki uh, influence it's it's amazing um even more so than other pixar films and you know that they love that like there's there's a real clear kind of trade between their work um, which maybe we should talk about a little bit but i i do think that it's difficult in a commercial family film to have those elements of real darkness and to show the ways that life can be truly disappointing and can really not work out for you like at in some way, you just always kind of have to. No one is, or I should say, no one has ever figured out a consistent, good commercial way that works really well with American audiences to make that cost clear and make it stick. At some point I in the actually, end, you always have yeah. to kind of pull back and, like, that's, I mean, that's what Steven Spielberg always does, right? There's, which is one of, the reasons that he's you know so successful is is every time he shows you a cost he'll walk right up to the line 
And then at the end of War of the Worlds, there's the missing son. He's just been in Boston the whole time. He wasn't actually going to kill the son, right? Because that would have been too much. And and there's just this sort of commercial sensibility that Pixar has to work within. The fact that they give us a cost and show, us, show it to us at all, I think, is eh, it's not as brave as they could be. But it takes it further than a lot of studios would. I think there's actually a fairly simple potential fix for that in this movie, though. There are these repeated references to someone named Lisa, who clearly Joe had a thing for and, like, didn't pursue. Um, And you could just show, you know, Joe finally getting up the courage to call her and, like, she's married with kids. She's somewhere else. But then he goes back to teach at school and you can see that he's going to have another kind of connection that's going to be really valuable to him. Um, I mean, I think there's it's the rare movie that I wish were a little bit longer. Like, I think you could have added five minutes and maybe stuck the landing a little bit better. Um, See, I like I actually like that they they leave it open ended when he is like given a second chance at life, what he actually wants to do with his life and what 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 choice he makes, because I do think there's look. Uh, I think the the thing the easy I think the easy way out of this would have been for him to like realize okay I'm happy being a teacher, yeah. um and and then just have him you know show him with the the student who you know he convinces to love love the art form you know she's she's doing a great job or whatever, um but I also don't think I don't think that would be honest to the spirit of the 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 whole enterprise because I do think that there's still look people. Uh, you know, the heart wants what it wants, right? Yeah. And and uh, you know, if if in his if deep within his soul he thinks I need to be a famous jazz musician, then it you know I think it I think it's I think it would be dishonest to like write that part out of his soul, right? I mean, I can see I can see the level of ambiguity. At the same time, you have that sort of wonderful scene where he plays this totally transcendent con- uh, concert with Dorothy and the band. And then realizes that, like, the big emotional catharsis that he thought was going to follow a moment like that is not coming. You know, it's like, it's the, yeah. you know, the parable of the fish in the ocean. It's like, you know, this is just, this is just water. Nope. This this is the ocean. This is what it is. This like, is definitely a movie born of uh, a string of gigantic studio feature hits that, like, Pete Doctor is like, man, I thought... If you'd told me when I was 25 that I would just make tons of movies that people would love and would be really wonderful and well-reviewed and make huge amounts of money, I, I would have felt like, gosh, I'm there. I've made it. Nope. You just got to wake up the next day and make the next movie. Yeah. But they're good. They I are. mean, I didn't not like it. I just, it's in a way, it's so good that I almost wish it was just a little bit better. Um, and I think to a certain extent, I was just a sucker for it's like, this is a movie about people in New York doing things, yeah. right? Like they're eating pizza in public. They're riding public transportation. They're like going to jazz clubs. They like, there's like a dry cleaners and seamstresses store that like hasn't been shut down because no one gets work clothes anymore. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, it's a gorgeous looking movie. Um, and it is such a wonderful visual testament to just the joys of everyday life um and it definitely made me feel like i've been sitting in my house for 10 months and i don't know how much longer i can put up with that i mean there there's a weird way in which this is this is like the little indie film that you wish that like more studios would take a chance on like as at the eight million dollar level right and yes obviously it's animated and it's it does a bunch of stuff probably a 150 million uh, dollar pixar movie right it's it's a quite expensive movie and it does a bunch of stuff in a way that only animation can do all of these scenes in the before the, the before life or whatever the after 
thing, you know, all of these, right, like these kind of jazzy uh, two-dimensional, right, uh, the, things running around with these little Miyazaki creatures and all of that stuff, right? It's very specifically animated. And yet, ultimately, this is a movie about a middle-aged jazz player guy who is like a teacher and has a midlife crisis that where he has to go in the end, he has to go talk to his mom. And, and it's, it's like a little indie flick, uh, you know, just done at this, at this mega level that you can't imagine, you can't imagine a live action version of this movie of any, like, it's hard to imagine it getting, getting greenlit at all, but certainly with like the effects that would be required, I mean, at $150 million budget level, you can't, you just sort of can't imagine this getting done. And somehow Pixar, on the strength of its brand and on the strength of just like 20 plus years of really great storytelling, has figured out how to do this and how to sell it to people in a way that that's, doesn't really exist outside of Pixar right now. One thing Rose we haven't talked about at all is Tina Fey's character. Um, yeah. And this has been kind of, you know, controversial, both because Tina Fey is considered problematic now and because it... Oh, um, no. What did Tina Fey do? Oh, she's just like a white lady who has made a couple of TV shows that have not aged terribly well. Um, <laughs> According uh, to who? Not me. The internet. Non-troversy. The internet. Um, and, you know, she ends up like her character ends up occupying his body for a lot of the movie while he's stuck as middle as like a cat. Um, I was curious what you thought of this movie or this, uh, you thought of that character, um, which I felt was like particularly affecting as someone who has a toddler. Um, but yeah, I, w I was curious how you guys felt about 22 since we've spent all of this time talking about Joe Gardner, um, and none about his like sort of ostensible co-star and the person who ends up teaching him that, you know, leaves falling from a tree in autumn is sometimes like all you need to appreciate life. Pizza. Yeah. Uh, Peter, you want to go first? I mean, I like Tina Fey. I, I, even as somebody who is not a television comedy watcher, she's a appealing persona. And the fact that she's obviously like a super in like hyper intelligent writer just like if you know anything about her or have ever experienced like anything she's participated in is super appealing i thought the i i thought the character was really fun um and like the the idea that here's tina fey as a like a pre-existing half a soul who has spent eternity being tutored by like the great eminences of history and like irritating the hell out of them in a really funny way is a is like one of the things about that is that it is a risky gambit as a plot device because if those bits aren't really good they aren't really sharp and funny then the then it's like it's kind of a bad idea that just doesn't work and it's a really hard thing to like think of and then execute on and you got to imagine that's sure Pixar has a bunch of good writers and talented animators but that's Tina Fey making those scenes work she, uh, her character is a troll's troll, uh, so I approve of 22 uh, on that level. Um, no, I mean, I think there's a very funny line where she, the 22 talks about how, like, she has the voice of a, of a middle-aged white woman, and she could have anything. She, like, mimics a bunch of other voices, because that is, that is the voice that is most annoying to people uh, right now at this moment in history. And I thought that, I thought that was, like, a clever, subtle dig at the again the people Alyssa who on the internet who think she's bad now 
because she she has made good TV shows that that they all laughed at, and now they have to denounce for being problematic. Um, you know. I, don't, I don't know if the two of you noticed this, but I thought one of the most interesting decisions in the movie is like almost invisible. But when twenty two is falling towards Earth um, at the end of, at the climax of the movie, it is very clear that she is going to end up and be born as a human in China, just from the map. Um, I don't know if either of you saw that, but it's like very, they make very clear that like that is where she's going. And interestingly, this movie has done quite well in China um, and sort of pushed back against a bunch of the stereotypes about Chinese moviegoers among them that um, they will not watch movies about black people. And thus that like this has been sort of a bit of Hollywood conventional wisdom that uh, Chinese audiences are racist and that has become a block on you know, making big movies around black stars. Um, but I thought, you know, I don't think that this movie is big in China because there's this little nod to China at the end. But I thought it was just sort of a perfect example of how that audience is now always sort of in mind when studios are making these decisions. And if you can work in sort of a gentle nod there. Um, and I thought, I mean, this is, it's not, you know, obnoxiously done at all. It's not pandering at all. Um, but I do sort of appreciate in a way that it acknowledges that, Chinese audiences are going to be an audience for this movie and also that you know it's just a big part of the world if someone was going to be like born randomly you know they're I probably going to be born in China or India yeah yeah well yeah there, I mean there there is that there's just like a numbers game uh, aspect to it I uh, this is beyond the scope of my knowledge and I should I should probably have contacted some of my priest friends on Twitter before uh, before broaching this this potentially problematic point but the the conception of the wow, afterlife i'm curious to uh, see where this goes the conception the conception of the afterlife and the pre-life in this movie is like explicitly not christian i mean it's like it it felt more eastern than western um am i, mean, I also, am i it wrong also here? feels like just sort of a funny riff on like personality quizzes well, and like well, what, it, what, it re- and... what it reminded me most of was defending your life the the albert brooks movie uh de- de- yeah. defending your life which is one of my one of my absolute favorite afterlife movies uh because it, it kind of envisions this 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 idea of the afterlife as the place where you go and you're like well did you did you improve enough to get to go on to the next level nope uh, you gotta you gotta do it again and that's kind of what it felt like here slightly different obviously um but uh, anyway, I, I I mentioned this because I wonder if that is another reason why it is doing why it is picking up steam in China. I mean, that's the interesting mm. thing is that it actually is it has grossed more it grossed more in its second week than it did in its first, which obviously is is not uh, the most usual uh, circumstance. But maybe that is something we can think about. I mean, certainly it's a movie that is um, sort of not deliberately culturally off putting. Um, in a way that I think is like canny without feeling pandering. Um, it's it's smart, you know. Yeah, it also, is. I mean, it's jazz it, is good. It, yeah, there's there is that. The people love jazz. The music uh, in so the do, movie is fantastic and really well rendered. And I mean, not just the the Trent Reznor stuff, but just the the jazz aspect of it is really faithful to how jazz bands sort of operate and and sound. Um, and like this movie just sounds phenomenal in a way that other films reach for but rarely get to. Yeah. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Soul? Thumbs up. 
Big thumbs up. And if I'd seen this before uh, doing our top three, I would have put it in my top three, which was actually a top eight or whatever. Yeah, well, that doesn't count because your your list was a million items long. So you can't you would have just added it on yeah. to, uh, you know, you don't you don't. You I don't might do have it made right. it tied for number one with the two films that I put at number one. Ridiculous. Uh, all right. That is. Oh, I thumbs up for me as well, uh, in case anyone cares. Um, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check us out. Uh, at the members only episode that we have going up at Bulwark Plus, uh, make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow a podcast audience. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. Uh, I didn't do a great job of hosting this week, so feel free to feel free to yell at me. But I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed yet again. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>